everyone, it's Imogen from SquarePeg. So a few years ago, it seemed like the news was flooded with stories of a very similar nature. These horrifying stories seem to grip the public consciousness, highlighting the ubiquity, use and vulnerability of Internet of Things connected devices, more commonly known as IoT devices. The small smart devices are in use in pretty much every commercial and domestic setting in the world, from your personal uses like the thermostat in your home, a connected asthma inhaler, to less well-known examples on transport vehicles, in power grids, or in hospitals. And they can be extremely useful, administering insulin at the right time for diabetics, keeping your aquarium warm for your fish, or ensuring machines are working perfectly in a factory. They're often small and inexpensive, and consequently, they are everywhere. Sternum estimates that there will be over 40 billion IoT devices in deployment, likely near you by 2025. That is a staggering amount, and potentially, it's also really scary. IoT devices are notorious for having limited or no protection against hackers, and largely it's because the devices themselves are mostly low-powered, unsophisticated, that directly tap into internet networks, providing a very attractive backdoor for hackers to target. And where this becomes even more problematic is when you consider what sophisticated hacks against IoT devices are able to accomplish. I'm going to give you a couple of examples. In 2013, attackers gained access to Target's point-of-sale machines through their ventilation service provider. The hackers stole data from nearly 70 million people. In 2015, Chrysler recalled 1.4 million Jeeps after hackers proved they could remotely control, steer, and apply the brakes of the car. In 2019, the FDA issued an alert on deployed Medtronic insulin pumps, warning that the devices used to administer life-sustaining insulin could be remotely controlled by someone other than the patient or the healthcare worker. And really, the examples go on from sex toys held ransom to acid sensors in water plants. And this is without us getting into the more commercial use of IoT hacks, which is to weaponize thousands of devices and orchestrate distributed denial of service attacks, often called DDoS attacks, which effectively overwhelms services with requests and took down Netflix, Twitter and other services back in 2016. And then came the event that rocked the IoT device security community. Dubbed Ripple 2.0, an Israeli security firm discovered that a code base copied and unwittingly installed across over a billion IoT devices by manufacturers, including the likes of Intel and HP, had 19 hackable vulnerabilities hidden within the code base. The most serious of these vulnerabilities would allow a hacker to remotely access and control devices. It was huge news, and into the breach stepped Natalie Shuva, a 27-year-old Israeli founder who went on to prove that remotely securing IoT devices was not only technically possible, but scalable, effective, and safe. Since founding the company at 19, Natalie and the Sternum team have partnered with leading manufacturers to protect life-sustaining devices. And in today's episode, not only will you learn more about IoT devices and how the security of them has evolved over the years, but also what she's learned building the company in a highly competitive and highly technical field. Meet Natalie. 
When I was a kid, I grew up with a family uh, with four big brothers. They were uh, much bigger than, than myself. So the youngest one was uh, 10 years older than me. So for me, it was a lot uh, of uh, basketball, football, fighting and boys games. Uh, you can call it that way. Uh, my father was actually a very young entrepreneur. So he built his own business from the age of uh, 13, uh, the low-tech business. So he comes from uh, the concrete business and he established uh, a corporation that actually most of my family is working at. So my oldest brother is now the CEO. My second brother is the uh, chief operation, you can call it that way. <laughs> they have different titles uh, in that matter. So building your own business and uh, navigating in, uh, with, with some business orientation was something that was very strong in our house. And when I was 14 and started my undergraduate degree in computer science, that was a very strange experience in my family because none of them came from any academic background. And uh, actually nobody knew what computer science is, myself included, so I just liked playing video games and I thought that uh, it's, it will be interesting to learn how you can do that, how you can actually write the games and build the games. And this is how I started and as you know finished uh, prior to my military service. So no, you didn't mishear that part. Natalie started her undergraduate university degree when she was just 14 years old. And while she breezed past it, you're probably asking the same question I was. How does that even happen? Yeah, so uh, it's a combination of a few factors. First, I was uh, pretty bored at school, so I didn't invest any time at all, and, and I had good grades. And one of the things in my area of living is that they have special programs for talented kids. So uh, actually a few dozens of kids are getting a letter to invite them to uh, training and tests to see if they fit for the undergraduate degree in an early age. So when I received this letter, it sounded like a good waste of my time, right? Because I didn't really invest uh, so much in school, and that was uh, a way to expose myself to something new. And I wanted to experience that. So I just answered the, this, this challenge, went to the test, and from that moment on, when I you know, moved to the next stage and then started the undergraduate degree, it just uh, seemed like a very good way to include something interesting in my life in addition to just playing around and, and going to school. So in the first year, uh, it's basically math and some programming, and I wasn't sure exactly how it's going to look like in actual career or what am I going to do with that. But it was challenging. I really liked the realistic and, and logical thinking, but I wasn't sure yet that computer science is what I like to do. As we move forward, especially in the next couple of uh, years of studying, when we entered a little bit cybersecurity space, uh, I immediately found it very interesting uh, because it was something that combines psychology with some kind of uh, a very big challenge of attackers against defenders and a lot of creative thinking. And during the studies, there were a few additional things that I really liked. I really liked the math uh, courses. But really, only after actually practicing uh, in, the, in the military is where I understood that this is something that, that I really liked. 
So Natalie started doing her bachelor's in computer science at 14 and finishing regular school in her spare time. It sounded intense, honestly, but this was her first opportunity to explore the creative and logical challenge of cybersecurity, and it certainly helped pave the way for Natalie's eventual time in the military, where she was accepted into the elite Israeli intelligence unit A200. Now, 8200's most helpful international comparison is the United States' National Security Agency, or the UK's GCHQ, and it's the largest single unit of Israel's defense forces. Graduates from 8200 have gone on to found many, many technology companies with a particular gravity around cybersecurity, which isn't hugely surprising as 8200 specializes in intelligence, information technology, offensive and defensive cybersecurity operations, and cyber warfare. It's really, really difficult to get in. The unit's success has been attributed to three things. The first is talent. Each year, a new crop of brilliant, bright minds enters the military. They are the smartest of their generation, and they know they have at least a few years in which to contribute. Second, the unit is in constant demand. The digital ecosystem is rife with challenges that A200 is called upon to work on. Most recently, A200 was reportedly called upon by the Israeli Health Ministry to help provide data science expertise to analyze the COVID-19 situation. And third, they have a culture of exploring and using the most advanced technology in the world. So it's not only work of national significance, but you're surrounded by geniuses learning new toys. Natalie was one of a handful of women in her unit, and like I said, she couldn't go into specifics, but she did tell me about what she'd learned during her service. So one of the things that I learned especially is that everything is possible and nothing is impossible. And I think uh, it's something that they put a lot of uh, emphasis on from early on, that there is no challenge uh, too big. And uh, basically the challenge does from, from day one to uh, push the limits into what can be achieved. And I think this is a very special trait that uh, is given in that course and, and that unit, especially the, the specific uh, places that I went to in A200. So that's one of the, I think, most important things that I learned uh, during this time. Uh, because it gives you actually the ability and confidence to uh, pursue really big visions and, and dreams, knowing that it can be achieved. After my service in A200, I joined Celebrite, uh, an Israeli company specialized in extracting intelligence for mobile devices. So we actually used uh, cybersecurity uh, vulnerability research and exploitation to unlock uh, encrypted devices and getting evidence from the devices. So first the impact was tremendous because I worked with law officers and government authorities to actually put pedophiles in jail, stop human trafficking, uh, so solve uh, murder cases. And that was a very strong connection between uh, challenging technology and, you know, practicing cybersecurity into a very good impact in the other hand that you can see immediately. 
And this is what actually attracted me to Cerebrite. I started as a, a vulnerability researcher uh, and then uh, built some generic exploitation to extract those evidence and decrypt them. And following that, I was a team uh, leader, leading the, uh, the research team that is responsible for Android devices. At that point, we needed actually uh, so, some kind of paradigm shift to uh, basically extract evidence from those devices since Android added some very unique defense mechanisms. So this is where I built uh, a team around uh, also, of course, the people, but also around how to map different opportunities, how to approach the challenge, how to mitigate the risks, because one of the things that is different in, in, in research in, uh, compared to development is that you don't know that you are going to succeed. Uh, you can find a vulnerability, uh, you can succeed or fail in exploiting it, and there is a lot of directions. So in many aspects, it's kind of like product management or building a product strategy because you need to analyze a lot of data, a lot of directions to build probabilities for each one and the value and, and impact of each capability that you are trying to achieve. And this is the way you build the strategy of your team and then divide the, the resources and, and help them through this challenge, uh, which is also a very interesting challenge because in some uh, aspects of, uh, of researching period, you feel like you're walking in the dark. And there is a lot of personal uh, touch that needs to be there when you accompany your, your team members to still have confidence and still uh, go outside of the box to try things that they didn't try before. And we had some significant breakthroughs during that period of time, and I think I learned a lot from, uh, from that experience. So at this point, Natalie has a comprehensive knowledge of computer science from her schooling, a strategic mind, and a resilient attitude from her army service. And at Celebrite, she learned how to build and lead a team, specifically to extract data from Android devices. And more importantly, she's learning about vulnerabilities and defenses and how they overlap. She's figuring out how you can comprehensively protect devices. To even pinpoint that to a level where it's actually a patented technology today. Um, since one of the things that I learned about the psychology of, uh, of cyber attackers is that they never give up. And you can have even just one vulnerability or one flow in your device or in your software, and they will probably find it if they are uh, passionate enough about that. Uh, so my vision was that you can never have zero vulnerabilities. So instead of trying just to uh, fill all the holes or close all the, the vulnerabilities, uh, which I find impossible, because I learned firsthand that there was no place where I looked hard enough and didn't find a vulnerability. So I don't uh, really believe in this approach. So what I actually took from that experience is that instead of trying to close all of your vulnerabilities, you can actually prevent what the attackers need in, in order to exploit a device. Uh, since we handle a lot of exploitation techniques, the ability to understand uh, what is it that you can take from the attacker that without it just cannot succeed in his exploitation or in his attack uh, was actually a different approach that we took in our, in our product that proved to be very effective even against 
real use cases that we see today uh, in the IoT space, where with our technology, it just became impossible to exploit certain vulnerabilities, classes of vulnerabilities. So we went from solving uh, a vulnerability one by one to solving entire classes in one approach. And that also reduces a lot of cost for companies, but also provides a very sustainable peace of mind. So coming from the attacker perspective, we actually turn the, the game around where it's impossible to exploit us instead of being impossible to close all the vulnerabilities. And I asked Natalie to give us her overview of how IoT devices are used by pretty much everyone all of the time. When you think about IoT device, don't think about a security camera or a baby monitor. You can think about water supplies, power grids, medical devices like insulin pumps and pacemakers. Those are very critical devices that affect human lives. Even human lives are dependent on them and they are all around us. Actually, it's predicted to be one of the most significant revolutions that we experience in the best few decades because everything is going to be connected to one another and this enrichment of data and connectivity can improve many aspects of our lives. But there is always another side of, of those advances and technologies. And those devices are widely spreaded. It's very easy to download their code or download even third-party codes that are spread between different kinds of devices. And unfortunately, it's very easy to find ways to exploit them. And there is a lot of incentives, unfortunately, for cyber attackers to exploit those devices, uh, starting from financial incentives, performing ransomware attacks, or stealing data that's worth a lot of money, like personal data or personal health information. So what we've seen, for example, during COVID-19 even, you would expect that uh, nobody will attack hospitals in that time of crisis. But the other way around happened. So we had an increase in attacks on hospitals in Europe and the U.S. It's assumed to be that 25% of attacks on hospitals started from uh, smart IoT medical devices. So not only attackers are targeting those uh, facilities and perform different ransomware attacks and actually affecting uh, the hospital's operation and ability to treat patients, we also see that the IoT devices played a significant role uh, in those attacks. Uh, we also saw that in the water supply attack. We saw different attacks on industrial facilities. And actually, today, we are at a place where we have more than 300% more attacks on IoT devices. And 25% of attacks in general on enterprises are involving IoT devices. So actually, the thing that we need to remember is that cyber hackers are there. They are not afraid of uh, hurting critical infrastructures and, and mission-critical devices. And I'm not even talking about uh, national-grade kind of attacks. And the other part is that they are looking for the weakest link in the chain. And today, unfortunately, IoT devices are much less protected than the traditional IT space. So when we first met Natalie and the Sternum team, learning about this space 
kind of freaked me out. It felt too overwhelming that this entire offensive and defensive world existed and I had very little awareness comparatively of it all. And while we're going to come back to what the hell do we do about all of these vulnerable IoT devices, we're going to start with Natalie's decision process to spend the next decade of her life solving this problem. For context, she just finished her master's in computer science, turned 25, and was weighing up switching careers entirely. It was always a dream of mine to become a doctor or to practice medicine. And at 25, it was actually my last uh, kind of uh, period of time to take this decision. Am I going to change my career course and, and uh, pursue this dream or, or just continue in the cybersecurity space, which I liked a lot? So I actually took this uh, decision very seriously and went uh, meeting with different professors, different doctors. I even went to uh, operating rooms to see how it looks like an actual operation and the actual day-to-day job as, as a doctor. And I also was interested in combining computer science with uh, medical research uh, because I thought this combination is a great synergy. And during this period of time, one of the things that came up is that a lot of remote care devices, like insulin pumps and, and, and neuromodulation devices, can be much better if they use connectivity and cloud-based algorithms that can treat remotely patients instead of uh, manual uh, kind of uh, treatments that they have today. And I was amazed to see how cybersecurity is such a big challenge for those medical device manufacturers companies that are actually afraid of cyber attacks and that kept them from developing certain technologies. And this was the first thing that attracted me to start researching this subject, both technologically and commercially. It just seemed wrong that brilliant, medically safe advancements were being permanently shelved because no one had figured out how to protect IoT devices from getting hacked. And so recognizing the huge potential to do good in the world, she set out to understand how big the problem was. And as she found out, it was huge. And when we started with that, uh, it was actually became very clear that the need is so big in other industries as well. Railway, critical infrastructures, as I mentioned, industrial, smart cities. And since we went for a very broad, generic solution, it was clear that uh, uh, our technology and and market is is, uh, much bigger than the medical space, even though that was the original passion and will. Much bigger is an understatement, and my colleague Philippe is going to explain why. So the good news are that the IoT market is gigantic. The bad news are that the security damages that it creates are also huge. We're talking today of more than 75 billion IoT devices in use in 2020. Uh, And therefore, there is an urgent need for security to protect them against cyber criminals. And cyber criminals include states. And all these people exploit their inherent vulnerability to create huge damages to critical infrastructure, to medical devices, to industrial facility, pretty much any business and institution. Just a few months ago, if you remember, uh, Australia was under an attack that targeted some of its critical infrastructure. A few weeks prior to that, Iran tried to increase chlorine levels in the Israeli water system that could have seriously injured uh, uh, citizens. Just the one-time cost of restarting a refinery after being shut down by a cyber attack is more than $100 million. Uh, And just the idea that millions of pacemakers 
uh, users, patients, are vulnerable to an attack that could potentially cause deaths is obviously mind-boggling. So I don't think there is any doubt that the IoT market is gigantic, uh, growing very quickly, more than 30% a year. Uh, and maybe one last fact about how big is this uh, IoT market. Uh, for every computer smartphone you own, you basically own tens of IoT devices. You own a webcam, a ring, a thermostat, a connected fridge, a connected car, all kind of wellness devices to measure your steps, your breathing, and of course, medical devices, pacemakers, insulin pumps. That's how you get to the tens of billions of, uh, of devices. However, IoT devices, besides being somewhat connected to the internet, are very different than computers, printers, mobile phones. They're very small, they're very low cost, they don't process much, they don't have a lot of power. In the majority of the, of the cases, they don't run standard operating system. Uh, they don't sit uh, within an enterprise network. Existing security solution approaches provided by the traditional security vendors are just irrelevant. Network security vendors like the Checkpoint or Palo Alto of this world, they cannot do much. A pacemaker, for instance, is not really connected to a network. And unfortunately, by the time a firewall detects an attack, the patient would be dead. So solving the problem requires a total paradigm shift, a completely new holistic approach with a totally new architecture. This is true, by the way, from a technology perspective, but also from a go-to-market perspective. And so while the opportunity is huge, so too was the technical challenge. The accepted wisdom at the time was that IoT devices wouldn't be able to have security that runs on the device itself a big hurdle in protecting devices. The reason why uh, it was assumed to be impossible is that those, those devices are very low on resources. They do not run Windows, Mac, or uh, Android operating system. They run on real-time operating systems that are used uh, in very embedded systems. Most people don't even know their names. And they have a lot of constraints. And agents are usually tailored per operating systems, requires a lot of resources, and just not suitable for that environment. So when we entered the market, most of the solutions was network-based solutions, securing networks of IoT devices, like networks of hospitals, network of enterprises like armies. But nobody actually tackled the challenge of being on each and every device. And that was super necessary because around 50% of the IoT environment are distributed devices that have no network security that can protect them, right? If you have an insulin pump that are used in your home, then there is no hospital's network that can protect you. There is no firewall. There is no segmentation. It's just you and your medical device and your mobile phone, maybe. And we brought this idea of how to solve the technological barriers and actually bring the first of its kind security to this distributed environment. And of course, the endpoint security concept to the IoT space that actually even provides additional layer for enterprises needing to protect both the network and the endpoint. Now we are not the only ones basically selling security solutions to device manufacturers, but I'm proud to say that our technology is patented. Uh, we have a unique combination and synergy between uh, protecting against the exploitation and identifying complex 
bugs using binary instrumentation. So we actually instrument the software and during real-time execution, able to uh, perform active mitigation. So it's a very proactive approach of stopping uh, any kind of attack before it happens. And this is unique compared to our competitors that are still trying to uh, increase the device level of security, but still going through trying to solve in all security issues. Uh, we are also the only uh, one capable of offering this solution to all kinds of IoT devices. So we can uh, basically install our solution to each and every device, not just Linux-based, in a few days with zero efforts from our customers. And this is due to the way we build the technology in the first place, which is uses very advanced techniques of binary analysis and instrumentations, uh, which are considered very difficult to, to perform. I'm going to recap this bit here because it's fundamental to understanding why what Natalie just explained she and her team built is genuinely transformational and in some cases life-saving for anyone protected by her software. So Sternum's dashboard helps to visualize and manage distributed devices with the first and only on-device monitoring system. The system detects immediately if there is an attack attempt, which then prevents it. And it does all of this with a minimal 3% overhead, ensuring that the device doesn't run out of battery or overwork itself. And importantly, it protects the entire machine, even third-party components, which are often the most vulnerable part of the device. And for this reason, they're a very attractive solution for major manufacturers. Selling to major manufacturers is actually a special kind of playbook that we developed in Sternum. So we understand very deeply the needs and characteristics of uh, those major device manufacturers and how to work with them and uh, actually make them see us as partners that are strategic to their growth. And one of the things that uh, I can share is that unlike going into a scary mode where you can just talk about how they can be hacked and how terrible it will be, we actually focused on bringing value from day one. So instead of just stopping future attacks that may happen or may not happen, from the first line of code written and up to even 10 years post-production of a device, we save cost of updating those devices we save the cost of needing to constantly mitigate vulnerabilities, sending updates into field due to vulnerabilities that are being exposed each month. So those companies already spend a lot of time, efforts and money on basically racing against disclosed vulnerabilities and we can dramatically reduce those costs automatically. And the way for us to prove that is just take a device, a vulnerable device with known vulnerabilities, and they can see that our technology acts as active mitigation to those vulnerabilities. So actually, in a real case scenario, and we proved that uh, in Ripple 20 example, Ripple 20 was third-party vulnerabilities uh, that affected millions of devices. And each and every vendor that got exposed to those vulnerabilities needed to go through a very tiring process of confirming that he is vulnerable, finding the right people to understand which devices are vulnerable. Imagine that you have millions of devices, you need to understand 
where this code uh, that is vulnerable is actually being used. Then you have to fix the issue. It's not very easy to fix or, or install a patch in the IoT and embedded space. And then you need to go through uh, a verification and validation process, initiating a new version, filing to the FDA even if you are in a regulated space. And then you need to send an update. This whole process can cost a few millions of dollars. Now imagine that you had sternum inside. We were able to prove to our customers that installed uh, our solution that they are not vulnerable to Ripple 20, even if they use the vulnerable code because it's just impossible to exploit the vulnerability. And one of the things that became clear is that if a vulnerability is not exploitable, you are in fact not vulnerable. And if they check in their labs that they are not vulnerable, then they are not under pressure to initiate this costly update as soon as the vulnerability is disclosed. They're actually not being a vulnerable vendor, and they can fix the issue later on when they uh, release a new version anyhow. So we bring control to our customers. They can actually patch at their own pace. They can save manpower and cybersecurity costs on this endless race against vulnerabilities. And that's even without getting into how the data that we are able to harvest for them and present to them uh, helps with their quality analysis, performance analysis of their software, and reduces time to launch. So for our customers, even if there is no cybersecurity attack in the horizon in the next year, the ROI of using our products is very clear immediately and during the POC process. It's for this reason, helping IoT device manufacturers take back some control over the endless cycle of vulnerability identification and patching that means the Sternum team assigning major partnerships. And you may even work with or use a device that contains Sternum security software. As we were talking about Natalie's experience of building Sternum, I wanted to know if there was anything she came across in her journey that surprised her. Yes, of course. I think every, uh, even for uh, an experienced entrepreneur, in every new path and, and new uh, adventure, there are things that surprise you along the way. So I, especially for me, it was the first time uh, establishing a company. Uh, but if we go back to what I said about Unit 200 about no challenge being impossible, I think it's really about how you take these surprises and, and these challenges. And for me, it just passioned me even more uh, when the challenge is bigger or when there are obstacles. Uh, this is where I like to get out of the box and, and put even more effort and creativity into the problem. So I really take these surprises as, as a good point where you can uh, actually create the biggest growth for you. So. Another challenge, for example, was investors saying that uh, medical device companies that are so conservative and so uh, regulated will never put an Israeli software of a small startup on their devices. So imagine a medical devices with a software from an Israeli company with less than 10 employees. There were several investors that thought that this challenge is impossible. But I'm proud to say that today we have hundreds K of devices, medical devices by Medtronic, the biggest medical device manufacturer in the world today, 
that are communicating with our cloud every day, every second actually, and our software is protecting them in real time across the globe. So again, every surprise became a huge, uh, satisfying challenge that we were able to crack. And as we know very well here at Square Peg, one of the biggest challenges when starting a company is choosing the right investor. I think that the most important thing is to find a real partner. And the partner should be across different ver- verticals. Uh, of course, it should relate to your vision and understand that uh, there is no one method, one box, right? You can't take decisions based on just uh, analytic approach that worked for you before. And there needs to be a partner that really understands the vision of the company and feels the same around that and want to go with you the, the road to the same, to the same goal. Uh, the other part is, of course, chemistry and trust. Uh, trust is uh, one of the things that uh, are most important to me. And I think that uh, even if you have a great uh, investment offer that is much better than other offers, uh, you should go with the best partner and uh, not with the best offer. Uh, because it's one of the biggest and most important decisions that you can make about your business. In the end... Natalie chose to work with Philippe, one of our SquarePeg partners based in Tel Aviv, who led her $6.5 million seed round. Philippe was amazing, actually. And my recollection from the first meeting is that even though we had two uh, term sheets already uh, with some great offers, I uh, finished the meeting and I said, I think we need to work with Philippe. Yeah, uh, it was uh, really a great experience meeting him, both personally and professionally. I was really amazed from his approach, from his uh, out-of-the-box thinking, from his uh, ability to understand our vision and actually be passionate about it uh, early on, and uh, from his transparency along the process. And from that first meeting, it only proves itself uh, to be a very good decision. I think uh, working with Philippe and partnering with, uh, with Squarepeg was one of the uh, best decisions that uh, we took as a company. So the future for Sternum is actually leading and taking a very strategic place in the IoT revolution and connected future in general. So. Securing this revolution is one of the key aspects and and key missing essential parts of uh, moving forward to that future. But one of the other things that we are super passionate about is our strategic capability to unlock hidden data points from uh, billions of devices, from their internal behaviors, from their blind spots, from their third-party code, from how their software behaves, and to actually take this massive, very insightful data and to process it in a way that will give insights directly to the enterprises using the products and the device manufacturers or customers needing to keep improving, keep creating new devices that uh, offer even uh, new capabilities and to better create their strategic growth. Supporting this with a synergy of cybersecurity and data that actually empower each other because our security capabilities are much more enhanced when we are collecting this data from fleets of devices, cross-vertical, 
and during the development and post-market. This is enriching our detection algorithms, our machine learning capabilities, but also the security is enriching the data. So using our deep expertise in security and binary analysis that came from the cybersecurity space, we actually created a unique ability to harvest data from different places of the software that are very unique. I think that this synergy actually created the vision for our company to really answer the most burning issue of the IoT space today, which is how to enhance the abilities of this connected future and make sure we optimize what we can do with it and to make sure it's secure because it affects every aspect of our life and we need a strong and sustainable way uh, to resist any kind of uh, bad actors. Natalie is clearly outrageously impressive, even among the outrageously impressive people that we invest in. And as with all of our founders, her story is one of a kind. She's achieved so much and has founded a company that is truly working to make our modern world a better place. But to finish off, I wanted to know what it is about the way Stanham works that Natalie thinks is unique. I think one of the things that are unique at, at the way we do things is uh, transparency and truth. So we are very truthful to one another and very transparent into uh, every aspect, basically, the, the business, the, uh, the technology, the challenges. And I think um, it creates a very uh, strong relationship between the people in the company. So it's a very unified approach that is targeted at achieving very big visions and and solving very big challenges, but doing that in a very uh, truthful and and transparent way, uh, where we, after work, you know, we go play basketball together and and ping pong and and prior to COVID, uh, drinking beer, but that happened for a long uh, time now. But I really think that this is the the culture that we are building around keeping the impact in mind all the time. The Sternum team are hiring, so if you know any near geniuses who want to help protect the world's IoT devices, you can find out more at sternum.io. That's it for this week's episode. A big thank you to Natalie for sharing her story with us, to Philippe for working to bring her into SquarePeg's portfolio, and to you for staying with us. This episode is the last I get to work with my brilliant producer, Rami. Hey, Rami, who is taking off for a full-time role at a radio station here in Australia. And while we are stressed, honestly, at the prospect of not working with her weekly, we are so proud of her and know she'll be a phenomenal addition to her new team. And with that, I'll let Rami choose whatever music she fancies to close this episode. Oh, before she does... A reminder that our weekly newsletter, All Signal, will go out on Monday. And if you sign up now, you can still get a copy of a truly life-changing long-form article written by my colleague James Tynan, who, after getting diagnosed with four autoimmune diseases, decided to figure out the subtle art of energy management. It's weirder and more practical than you'd expect, and you'll only get it if you sign up to All Signal at spc.vc. It's one you don't want to miss. Okay, take it away, Rummy. (laughs) 